If you're looking for a quality Kickstarter marketing specialist, I recommend the folks over at Next Level Web. They charge flat fees with an easy monthly agreement and they get serious results. Their goal is to get you funded on day one and their rate of success for that is above 90%, regardless if you're a veteran or a first-time creator. As a client myself, I can personally attest to their quality as they have helped me raise tens of thousands of dollars for my own projects. So if your email list looks pitiful, but your game is awesome, head on over to nextlevelweb.com slash kickstarter and take your marketing to the next level. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com. Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab podcast, a proud member of the Dice Tower Network. Each week, we want to bring you an insightful interview on a specific topic in board game design to help you design and create games people love. And now, here's your host, Gabe Barrett. What's up, my friends? Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab. Today, we're getting open. We're talking about open world games, and we're talking to a guy who has designed what many people, including me, think is the best open world game ever made, uh, and that's Mr. Ryan Lockett from Red Raven Games. Ryan, welcome back to the show. Thank you. Thanks very much. Yeah, man. Glad to have you here. We were just chatting. I think you were somewhere in the first 50 guests way back four or so years ago, and now you're coming up. We're coming up on 300 episodes, and so it's great to have you back on the show. You've done a few things during that time. It, uh, it, you've been busy, and so I'm excited to, uh, to chat about some of those projects you've been working on, especially when it comes to open world games and, and games in that, that genre. But before we dive in, remind people who you are, how you got into game design, got into publishing, all that kind of thing. Yeah, so hey everybody, I'm Ryan Lockett. Uh, My game publishing company is Red Raven Games. I started out in the industry uh, as an illustrator. I mean, I was designing before then and trying to get in. I was designing games, but that was sort of uh, my first paying gig was doing art for other game companies. And then after a few years of doing that, I uh, launched the, my wife and I launched uh, Red Raven Games. And we've been doing that for about 10 years. So yeah, that's so cool. And remind me, what is your wife's role at the company? I know she does a lot of really cool stuff. Yeah. So Mallory and I work together on a lot of stuff. Um, she, um, I mean, so we do a lot of these storybook games, right? Um, and I usually write the first pass of all the stories. Um, but then Mallory takes the stories and, um, refines them, edits them. Um, I mean, it's hard to describe all the stuff that she does and that we all do because we're such a small company. So everybody has to, you know, wear a lot of hats. And, um, but, uh, I mean, she's like play testing a, a lot of stuff. Um, we did this documentary, uh, recently we were involved in where you can see like how, how much she's involved, you know, asking me questions, helping ref- me refine the game, stuff like that. Um, so yeah, I mean, we, we both are so involved in every game. Very cool. And that documentary is called Crafting Arzium, if I remember correctly. Uh, yep, that's right. Yeah, I've, I've seen the trailer. I had the, uh, the the filmmaker. He was on the show way back when, when, whenever he was doing the Kickstarter campaign for that. Haven't been able to check it out yet, but I'm looking forward to it. Uh, it looks great from the trailer. And anytime you get an opportunity to look into a game designer's process and see behind the scenes, I think it's, it's a good idea. If you want to be a good game designer, then learn from other game designers. Just like if you want to be a good athlete, you 
you typically watch other people playing the sport and learn from them and see what they're doing. And so, yeah, I definitely recommend people go and check that out. I know it's available on Amazon and maybe some other places. Is that right? Uh, yep, that's right. Very cool. Well, hey, let's dive right in. Let's talk about open world games. What's a good working definition? What would you say, like, when I say open world, what does that mean? You know, it's it feels like it's kind of a nebulous um, term because it gets thrown around a lot. I think in video games, there's there's more of a specific um, idea of what that game means. It usually means like you are a character and you can go in any direction and there's a lot of like exploration and like that's a main element of it, usually like a quest system. Um, but in board games, um, it seems less specific. Like I've seen some games, um, people call it an open world game, even though it's like a very small sort of area um, and maybe only a few limited things you can do, but maybe it just feels like an open world game because you can sort of walk in any direction. (laughs) Um, But I would say, yeah, in in open world for me, I think exploration uh, is like a huge, huge part of it. Um, just feeling like you can go in any direction and there's something out there waiting for you, you, you get to find and, and sort of that, that's a big part of the draw of that type of game. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. A lot of the games that I feel like I'm going to mention here in just a little bit, you can go where you want, when you want, do what you want, play the game in whatever style you kind of feel like. There's lots of different paths to victory or different ways to explore the the areas or the maps or things like that. That seems to be the case for board games. Like you said, video games have been doing this seems like a lot longer and in a lot broader ways. You just can't have as much content in a board game unless the game is going to be three hundred dollars uh, or more. <laughs> and some of, these, some of these games are they are super expensive once you add in all the expansions. To be fair, but yeah, it is a little bit more challenging. It's funny I've been designing this uh, open world uh, Pokemon style game called Robomon for a while, and I remember I, I've run into so many people that you say, "Yeah, I'm designing an open world board game," and they go, "That's not possible." Like they're just like you can't you can't do that. I don't know what you're talking about. These words mean nothing to me because that is an impossible task, and uh, I don't know that they're wrong, but uh, but it is interesting to see the uh, the differences. And so let me just read a list of games that I looked up you know online on Board Game Geek and different places. It's like, all right, what do you consider an open world game? Just you know, people asking that question and having conversations about it on on Facebook or Reddit or BGG. And here's a lot of the games that came up over and over again. It was Zaya, Runebound, Western Legends, Seventh Continent, Merchants and Marauders. Hex, Splorit, Folklore, Near and Far, and then Sleeping Gods. And then obviously you're the designer on those last two. Yeah, but there's also this debate about all of these games on this list. It's like, okay, <laughs> what is an open world game versus a sandbox game? Is that the same thing? Is it a different category? So what are your thoughts? When someone says sandbox or open world, are those synonyms or does that mean something different? I, You know, I, I want to tread carefully in this, uh, <laughs> uh, in this area because I... Um, I'm afraid I might offend people, but I, I do think maybe the open world term gets thrown around a bit too um, often in, in board games. Um, I think sandbox game is maybe a better uh, description of like, like, okay, here's an example. Like for Near and Far, you mentioned Near and Far. I think Near and Far, I wouldn't use it, it quite as an open world game. I think it's more of a, maybe more of a sandbox game. Um, because there's a map and you can kind of go wherever you want and you can just spend as much time as you want to in town. So it's very open. Like the structure is very open in that game. 
Um, and I think that lends itself to kind of a sandbox where you can just sort of do whatever you, it's like the game throws you a bunch of stuff and you can just kind of play with it. Right. Um, but I think in like an open world game, I feel like you're right. Like a lot of people say, Oh, that's impossible for board games. Um, and I do think it is very difficult because I think a big part of open world is having enough content where it feels like you're like, there's a, I don't know if maybe, maybe an open world game doesn't need to be vast, but I think it does need to be big enough that you feel like you're constantly finding new stuff. You know, that's, because that's kind of one of the defining features in like an open world video game. You know, when you, when people think of open world video games, which I think that term comes from, you know, let's be honest, the term comes from video games. Um, They're thinking of like Skyrim, you know, where it's just an absolutely massive place that you could spend hours and hours walking and still not reach the end. I mean, you can't quite do that in board games because you're right. There is like that limitation of, of content that, uh, you have to deal with, but I do think like having a certain amount, like a certain size, uh, of, of a place that you can explore. That's an important part of it. Does that make sense? Yeah, I definitely agree. And and like I said, it is a little bit nebulous because there's no like hard and fast rule. Oh, well the square mileage of the map (laughs) needs to be 18.74, you know, like there's nothing like that, but right. There's, (laughs) there's not like the, the jury of uh, open world games is going to like decide, right. (laughs) If you can call it, if if they are there, the people on Reddit, I assure you, would raise their hand and say, hey, we want to be part of that jury just based on the, uh, the conversations <laughs> I've seen there. But um, but yeah, it, it is almost like a gut feeling. But, you know, one thing I've seen a lot of these games, like uh, Western Legends, for instance, an excellent game, but you have the board laid out and it's kind of like, well, this is this is it. This is the map. And there's not a ton of extra stuff. Like there's some of these RPG style games where you have cards or you have a board, you know, you have a big map going on, but then they have just stacks and stacks and stacks of cards that add to the game in some way. And so even if the, the play space is limited, the, the event space and all the encounter space is just massive beyond belief. And so maybe that plays into kind of the gut feeling of this feels like an open world because you can go a million different directions, or at least it feels that way uh, because of all the extra. Uh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Having, you can have that with the, the card system, you know, or like a storybook or something like that. Um, yeah, if there's enough, you're right. That that does make sense. If you have enough, it doesn't act exactly have to be the how big the map is. Yeah, absolutely. Just uh, almost like how big is the content? Like how how many different things can you see and explore and all that? Um, I want to talk a little bit more about the map systems in a minute. But before we get to that, let's talk about why these games continue to do really well on Kickstarter. They continue to do well in the market. They continue to be ranked pretty highly on Board Game Geek. A lot of people are playing these games. A lot of people are saying these are my favorite games of all time. Why do you think that is? What do you think it is about these games that just draws people in when they could easily go play uh, Zelda Breath of the Wild or The Witcher 3 or Skyrim and go get a, a open world experience in a video game, but instead they're doing the analog version and it's one of their favorite experiences. Why? That's a good question. And I think it has, you could ask the same question um, now that we have these gorgeously produced uh, big budget fantasy films uh, why would anyone ever go back and read the book? Um, but obviously, a lot of people say, oh, the book is better than the movie, even though you're getting these amazing productions. And I think there's maybe a level of, uh, you know, it's a different experience where you're sort of engaging with your own imagination. And that is a different experience. Maybe it's more immersive in some ways than um, 
you know, some of the, it is a good question though. I mean, <laughs> but I, I think there's some, a feeling you, you might get when you're just playing with cardboard pieces and a book or whatever cards or something on your own table uh, that you wouldn't get from playing a video game. Um, but it is a good question. I mean, because undoubtedly you're going to get a more robust and more vast open world experience with a video game. No question. Right. Yeah, this is something I've been pondering as well, because any anytime you start a project, I feel like you should take a step back and say, OK, why does this need to exist? And if I can't come up with a good reason, then maybe I don't need to pursue it. Right. And if, and so if you're going to pursue a game project like these games, which take forever and a day to even do 10 percent of them, like that's one thing I want to talk to you about is like how long these things take to produce. And so I, I started you know, just kind of thinking through and having this conversation with myself. And it's like, OK, well, well, one thing is people, especially now because of the pandemic, they spend all day long on a screen. They're working remotely. They're doing school, you know, on, a, on their computer or whatever. And so they're staring at a screen all day, all day long. And so you know, I think board games are a wonderful way to get away from the screen and then have just a, a moment of you know, being away from technology and just getting back to uh, basics, so to speak, and just pushing things around the table, rolling dice. But then also a lot of times these open world video games are kind of lonely. Like maybe you can play with other people online. Maybe it's a massive... Uh, you know, an MMO or something like that where you've got you know, friends or whatever, but it's just different than sitting around a table with a few of your really good friends or family members and experiencing this story, experiencing this world together. And so tell me about your experience with that. As you've play tested Sleeping Gods and other games, what have you noticed as far as like just that experience at the table that really draws people in? That's true. That's a very good point. That social aspect adds such a it adds so much dimension to that experience, you know, that you're right, that you wouldn't get playing it by yourself. Um, but it, it is interesting um, that a lot of people are playing these open world games like solo is so uh, it's such a big thing now. It's becoming so much so much of a thing. I remember years ago, um, people would ask for solo variants for our games when they came out. Like, oh, is this going to be, you know, can you play the solo? And I was always like, why? Why would you do that? Why wouldn't you just go play a video game? You know, um, but I was wrong. Like people definitely want to play some of these board game tabletop games solo. Like it's it's becoming so much more popular. But I will say um, sitting down with somebody else to read the storybook in like an open world like Sleeping Gods, um, you kind of create this experience together that the game it's like you're you're creating a new separate experience from the game just by being there together that the game doesn't offer you by itself. Um, and that has, that definitely makes those games more interesting. Yeah, for sure. In the same way, it's, it's fun to go to the movies with other people, you know, and then you get in a car home and you're, and you're talking about, Oh, you remember this? And this is so cool. when they did that. And could, could you believe the big twist at the end, whatever, <laughs> but you have other people that you can kind of experience that story with and how much value is there. But then, you know, reading a book is very much a solo activity. And so I can see a lot of people who are drawn towards experiencing stories through books and things like that, really enjoying solo games, especially an open world experience where you get to be in the story and affect things and change the world in some ways. And so, yeah, I, I can see the appeal on both sides. And it's it's no wonder that people are loving these games and that, that they're doing really well in the market. Uh, but let's, let's get into kind of like the design side of things. Let's talk about maps. Some of these games use a big board. Some of them use cards and you kind of draw cards and lay out the map as you go. Uh, some of them use the, the storybook system like you use in a lot of your games where you kind of have this, this nice coil bound book that lays flat and you, you kind of leave the map and you turn the page and things like that. Tell me things that you were thinking about in your design process, like why, you're, why you've chosen the storybook 
path and maybe some things you've thought about when it comes to maybe using cards, maybe using boards and things along those lines. So the, do you mean like the storybook Atlas itself? Yeah, yeah, just the, the map system, right? So here's the art and here are all the places you can go and why you chose the book versus cards, boards, or anything else. So the book, um, I remember the first, I had been sort of messing around with a book idea years before I did Near and Far, but I didn't see many games using it. And I really like the book Atlas, you know, Atlas map because um, it's very clean, you know, like you don't have to mess with a bunch of cards. You don't have to shuffle them or reset them up or anything like that. It's just like a super clean part of the game and you just, you know, it, it, it binds it all together. And so I, I remember being really excited about it and I remember being excited about the Atlas too early on because I thought I was always trying to think like, okay, how could I add more content to these games? You know, like, like a video game, what would be a way to do it in like an, uh, you know, that wouldn't cost a, a million dollars. Um, and the book just seemed so obvious and I didn't see many other publishers using it, you know, at the time, uh, I remember seeing, uh, there was like this Titanic game. I think that's the first game I saw that used a a spiral bound book. Um, it was like a sinking Titanic, but I honestly, like back then that was it. I can't remember any other game using like a board that was like a spiral book. Um, and so for me, that's just a, I love how convenient it is. And also just, I feel like when players hold the book in their hand, they can, they can like, they have this idea that the world is vast. It, it, it's almost like when you, when you play Skyrim for the first time and you sort of look at the whole landscape and you see how far away everything is, uh, or, or is all the breath of the wild. And you just, I remember playing breath of the wild and just constantly being floored that, that, that it was bigger. Oh, it's bigger than this. Oh, it's, it's constantly bigger. It's constantly bigger than what I expected. And that book, that Atlas kind of does the same thing. You're holding it and you know, there are a bunch of pages and a lot of people don't want to spoil it and kind of look ahead, but they know they're there and it's sort of enticing. Like, Oh my gosh, we got to get to page. I can't wait to get to page 15 or whatever. (laughs) Yeah, it is really cool when you when you hold one of those books and you literally feel the weight of the world. It's like, okay, the world is this heavy and I wonder where all the places it will take me. And Breath of the Wild, I feel like, has just inspired so many designers across so many different genres, video games, board games, whatever. I remember playing it back in, I think it was 2016, 2017, all whatever right. it was. And, yeah. um, and just thinking, would it be possible to design an open world board game, obviously not to this depth or this you know magnitude, but how would you do it? And I remember having a really interesting set of conversations with Jamie Stegmaier because he was thinking the exact same thing. He had played Breath of the Wild and he's like, oh, I want to make an open world board game. And he had been working on one. And so we were having this really interesting conversation. And my game ended up t- taking a kind of a turn towards Runebound. We had a board and cards, all this kind of stuff. But one thing I learned very early on is that my design skills at the time were nowhere near what they needed to be to even finish 10% of a project like that. And so I eventually put it on the shelf and then it showed back up years and years later as this new game that I've been working on uh, for a while. But it was really cool to hear Jamie as a really experienced designer working on things. And I think he's still working on it. Honestly, I think he's been working on this open world game for like till this day. And I know he's wanting to bring it out to the world uh, eventually. And I'm really excited for it. But I tell you what, Sleeping Gods unlocked something for my game because as soon as I saw that map book, and the way you handled it, and it's like, okay, that's how you do it. 
that's how you can create a world that is vast and can go in all sorts of different directions. And at the same time, it's contained. It's, it's easy to put back in the box. You don't have to deal with all these extra components. And so I think that was really a, a great idea on, on the way that you've kind of handled your maps and your systems and, and things like that. Uh, anything that stands out in your mind as far as like creating that system or creating those maps or, you know, is, is there such thing as too much? Is there such thing as too, too little? Like what are your thoughts as far as just the map book in general? Well, thank you. Yeah, I think um, to to tell you the truth, I honestly wanted it to be even bigger than that. Um, originally, I always I remember sketching it and thinking, okay, how big can I go? <laughs> um, and then, you know, it just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And um, you get to a point where you think, okay, I could be working on this for the next ten years. Um, and like the reality of the work sort of sets in. Um, but, you know, I, I do love that, that feel of like how, how big the, the world was. And, you know, it really get, I'll tell you what, where, where it really got hard is like, I created the map, I remember. And then when we get, we got to the writing, I remember, you know, maybe we're like halfway through writing and there was just so much left and it, and it felt like so daunting. <laughs> I think this is why you don't see so many games like that in the market. Um, just because it is very daunting. And in fact, I, I, you mentioned like feeling like when you were designing the open world game, feeling like you were not quite equipped. I felt that same way designing sleeping gods, because I remember when I started working on it, I was like, Oh my gosh, this is a completely different mindset than anything I've developed before. You know, I have to think in a totally new way. I can't think in terms of victory points anymore. You know, I'm always thinking in terms of like players trying to get victory points and competing to get the most victory points. And like that goes out the window. And I remember looking at so many other designs and, 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 and video games and trying to figure out how do you, you know, how do you get players to be engaged for such a long time? Uh, in a game, in a tabletop game, you know? So yeah, definitely there were some challenges there. Yeah. Let's keep traveling down that road. Cause that is a huge task right there, especially in a cooperative game. You know, I feel, I feel like if it's competitive, you can introduce some different things to kind of speed the game up or, or create tension. You can say, Hey, you've only got 20 rounds or you can make it a race. And the first one to get to 10 victory points wins the game. And so the players create the tension themselves. But when you have a, a cooperative game or a solo game, how do you how do you do that? How do you create an engaging world that the player continues to want to uh, travel in and explore? But at the same time, you know, you're providing some kind of tension and, and maybe an end game. Maybe well, like, how do you win? Like, what are your thoughts as, as far as that goes? Like, what were some uh, things that you figured out while designing Sleeping Gods as far as that direction? That, yeah, that was the biggest challenge in like the first year of development is figuring out how to make it like give the game some tension. Um, I feel like video games naturally have they already have this like built in because i shouldn't even say tension but like open world video games just the 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 fact that you're in the game walking around um and like picking things up and and seeing new things and collecting things that is enough of a draw for a lot of people to just play for hundreds of hours right um i think one of the first things that came up is like, okay, players need like they need goals, right? They need quests. They need the little, little mini goals that they have to try to, to do. But I remember at first it was like, I didn't have any time limit on the game because I thought, okay, 
you know, open world video games have zero time limit. So why would I do that in, in, a, in the board game? And so I had zero time limit and um, it started to feel like, you know, players would be rewarded for doing, um, for like grinding in the game, you know, <laughs> like doing boring things, you know, let's say you can't complete something. So you just do a repetitive task over and over and over again until you have what you need. And like in, in video games, people are more willing to do that, I think. Um, but in a board game setting, it just doesn't work as well, especially if you're playing with other people, you know, it's just boring. I don't know. It, it feels like people are just way more willing to do that in a video game. Like grinding in video open world video games is very common, right? Yeah, definitely. I wonder if it's like based on the cognitive load uh, in a video game versus a board game. Like it just seems like it's easier for a video game because it, it automatically sets up the board for you technically. And you're just sitting there moving your thumbs around and that's it. Versus a board game, there's more to it. You're actually having to pick up pieces, move things around. Like I wonder if that plays into it where people just aren't as into because it just takes longer and there's more setup, there's more involved. Right, right. So it's like more work to actually do that. It's more, <laughs> you're actually feeling more like it's it's boring work to move the pieces around in a repetitive way without using your brain. I think yeah. in a video game, you're getting that visceral experience where like maybe the repetitive action is kind of somewhat interesting because you have to, you know, manipulate the controls in just the right way. Yeah. There's also like the flashing lights. I mean, I wonder how that plays into it as well. Like it kind of tricks your brain and thinking, oh, new stuff is happening. Well, so I know this is the same thing I've done a hundred times in a row, but the <laughs> flashing lights and the sound and the music and the animations, I don't know. I feel like it just video games have such an advantage versus board games when it comes to this side of things. That's true. There's like a dopamine reward system that you're getting oh, yeah. a lot more in a video game. So in the in the board game, I remember the first thing I did in Sleeping Gods to try to to get that tension so so actions would feel more weighty and players wouldn't be rewarded for, you know, doing repetitive stuff. I, I, uh, I had like each game session had a certain number of turns and your goal was to get a certain number of, I, I can't even remember what I called it. it. I had victory points. I didn't call them victory points. It was like, you wanted to get like lore points or something. And it was like request points. So I don't know. You had to do a certain amount of exploring and, and completing quests but then it just felt very closed and tight. You know, it felt, it didn't feel like the open world games that, that I had enjoyed. Um, so I dumped that whole system and in the end, it's like the quests, you know, the quest system where you go to somebody and you, you just talk to them just like in so many open world video games and they tell you to, you know, they need help with something like just players wanted to see how the stories ended. And I would, I would watch players get these quests, you know, and, and, uh, like, I remember one player, he had to go, but he's like, oh, no, can we just do a couple more turns? I want to see what happens in the story. And when that happened, I thought, oh, my gosh, the stories are enough of a draw. You know, seeing the conclusion of these little quests, that's enough of a draw to keep players interested uh, for a long time in the game. And then um, and then I ended up having a sort of a very long term timer in the game where uh you the clock is ticking you know it's ticking but it's a long you know you have a long a lot of turns so you don't want to waste time because if you waste time you know if you do repetitive stuff in the game then you won't get uh, an outcome that's quite as good at the end of the story but it's really story based you know the 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 ending was based on how you know how much you get done so that sort of uh deterred players from you know doing boring things over and over again 
Yeah. One of the things I love about your, your stories and like the little, the, the ways that your characters in your story kind of view the world, they don't say, Oh yeah, go to location 47. No, they say go north and find the the rock that looks kind of like this. And so as a player, you're having to like, look at the map and go, okay, is that, is that this rock? Could it be that rock? But you're having to kind of think through and it's, it's almost this uh, really interesting verisimilitude where you're just kind of drawn into this living world and you're part of it. And so I think that's a really cool way to do it is, is to be clear, but also kind of leave some things up to be maybe a little bit vague and, and kind of be, you know, if I was telling somebody directions, I would not say go to location 45. I would say, you know, go up the street and take a right at the the big tree and turn left at the yellow house. Like that's how we would talk. Right. And so right. I think doing something like that in your story is a good way uh, to do it. And then, yeah, like you're, like you're saying, the story can draw people in and, and move them along. I remember the best professor I ever had in college uh, was a writing professor, creative writing class. And he said, the job of every single page is to get the reader to turn the page. Like that's the job. So going into every single page of writing that you do, you should have one goal and that is to get the reader to keep going. And so I think looking at the stories and the events that go on in your open world game is very similar. It's like, okay, how is this pushing the player forward, pushing them somewhere else, pushing them to see new things? Because if it's not doing that, then maybe it doesn't need to be there. And so I think that's one thing that can kind of help filter out ideas and filter out events and story items and things like that. It's like, okay, does this push players to want to know more? And so what would be your advice on how to do that? Like, how, how do you do that with the writing? How do you do that with the art to kind of get them to go, okay, yeah, I need to go home, but I got, I got 10 more minutes. Let's go see another one. How do you do that? <laughs> I think that was a big challenge because when we were writing the quests, um, it soon became apparent. It, it like... I remember thinking, okay, doing a game like this, every quest is like designing a new game. It's like designing its own little mini game. You know, is this going to be interesting enough to get players to want to keep going, right? So um, that that can be difficult. Um, and I feel like some quests in the game are more successful at that, at that uh, than others. But I think a key element... Uh, is surprise. Um, I think players want to be surprised. Um, and I've noticed in Sleeping Gods, uh, if you do some vague or unexpected stuff with the stories, it's actually better. I remember at the start of development, it was a lot more like structured because I had been designing kind of these Euro game style, you know, story Euro games, whatever. But it didn't, it didn't really occur to me like, oh, it's actually better to be a little bit vague for example, like if you're telling players where to go, because then there's this, we almost discovered this by accident. Like they actually, they're more invested in, or they're, they're more like immersed in the world because they're looking at that map, trying to decide where to go. Um, uh, and it's like way less structured. Um, and then for the stories, you know, like kind of thinking of ways to, um, and it, it's hard, you know, <laughs> it, it, sometimes it's not easy to, to come up with like weird, uh, obviously the stories have to be satisfying, but coming up with unexpected conclusions can be really important, uh, to these stories and, and giving players a sense of choice, like their choices do matter. Like I know people will look through the sleeping God storybook and they'll see certain stories that lead to the same, ultimately to the same end. But a lot of the quests do lead in different directions depending on the choices you make. And I think that is important, although it is a lot more work uh, to do that. 
Yeah, and it's got to be tough knowing that a player is only going to see a small percentage of what you actually created. You know, and so that's going to be tough as a, as a designer. I want to talk more about that in just a little bit. But one thing I want to go back to and it is being vague and you know not too vague. Obviously, you want to give players enough hints so they can figure things out. But I think there's a, a really valuable aspect of that, and that is the fact that a player can figure it out. So it's not the game telling them specifically, you know, location 45. It's not the game holding their hand. It's the game giving them pieces to the puzzle. And then the player gets to understand it and then put the pieces together and then go, oh, I cracked the code. I figured it out. And then they get to feel smart. They get to feel clever. They get that dopamine rush. You know, it's, it's a cool moment. And I think another thing that you do really well in Sleeping Gods is to vary the content. So not every single encounter is the same. Not every encounter is the same type of skill check. You know, some of them are combat encounters. Some of them are puzzles. Some of them diplomacy is the better route to take. And so there's a lot of different ways that the content is in or the players are engaging with the content. So I think that's really smart as well. Did you, is that something you just kind of learned along the way or did you have it in, in mind from the beginning? Okay. I want to have puzzles and I want to have combat. And I want to have all these different things. Tell me how you kind of landed on where you, where you did as far as the different kinds of content. I mean, we did kind of stumble into it. I remember at, at first uh, we were following what we did with near and far, which is, Near and Far always has the same structure, basically. You know, you read the story, there's like two choices. Um, occasionally, we deviate from that, but, uh, you know, and, and, the, and a skill check. But this time I was like, okay, this is such a, the exploration is such a bigger part of the game, like the story reading. So we really have to mix things up. And so um, I remember writing different encounters in that first map. And this is kind of controversial. Some players hate this, but. I remember writing certain encounters to be like almost inherently unfair and um, surprising just because I thought, okay, this is actually, you got to mix it up. You got to surprise players in a, in a, in a setting like this. This isn't a Euro game. It doesn't have to be fair for a while. I was thinking, okay, it has to be really, really fair. Like a, you know, like a Euro game, but it, I think at least in, in this setting, you can be a little unfair um, and a little surprising and mix up the different challenges, you know, with combat players are going to run into combats and challenges that they, uh, fail. And I think failure is an important part of a story. You know, it sort of tells, you know, when you read this, when you read, uh, people talk about how to write a story, you have to make it. So the characters sometimes fail, um, because that makes the victories way more, uh, important in the storytelling. Yeah, for sure. I feel like it's also super important to share most, if not all, of the kinds of things a player might run into early on in the game. And so, like, if there's going to be puzzles in the game, you don't want to introduce a puzzle halfway through. Like, you want to introduce that early on to say, hey, there are puzzles in this game. That's the kind of game this is. Uh, you don't want to introduce combat four hours in. You want to introduce it 10 minutes in. Because right. say, hey, there's combat in this game. You know, and just, and for in your case, you're saying, hey, this game's not going to be fair. And I'm telling you that right off the bat. <laughs> and it's very similar to Zelda Breath of the Wild because you can easily walk up into an area you should not be in and you are way underleveled and you have nowhere near the armor and the swords or whatever you're going to need and you can just get wrecked. And it's cool because it says, hey, this is a real world. This is not a video game, quote unquote. This is an actual living, breathing world and, and we're inviting you into it as the player. And I think it's really cool to do that, to, to say, hey, this this is a real place. And so I think, I think it's smart uh, to do it that way. Um, anything else you want to add along those lines? I do actually have something to mention. It's almost like a pet peeve of mine, but I don't know if it's a pet peeve is more like it's more of an observation. So there's something weird about video games where 
players have come to accept death as a mechanic. Like, and, and most games wouldn't even function without it. Like players don't even think about that, that it's weird that like, let's say you're playing uncharted and you are in a part of the story and you bust into a room and you get into a gunfight and then you die. But then the game starts you like, you know, just a few minutes back where you were in the story. Or if you play any game, you know, any open world game, if you die, you just start back, you know, at town or something. Um, I remember trying to introduce that into Sleeping Gods. I got so much pushback. Like players were like, what? That doesn't make thematic sense. Um, But it's such an important mechanic for open world games and RPGs and everything. Um, and so it's almost like that's a, it's a tool in the toolbox that you can't use as readily in tabletop games without explaining it in some way. And I don't know exactly why that is. Maybe it's just the culture of video games. They've just accepted it from Mario, you know, back in the day for, or from arcade games, you know, you die and you just start over at the save point. Um, but in, in, in board games, it's like people do not accept that. So that was an interesting challenge to to try to overcome. Yeah, it's really interesting. Now, I guess also with with board games, players can be like, "Yeah, that didn't happen. We're gonna we're gonna just set that right back up. We're gonna go back <laughs> here. We're gonna choose option B, and it's not option A." So I guess you can kind of act as the uh, the the go back system, the game over system yourself, and just fudge what just happened. <laughs> I guess maybe that's part of it too. Ah, oh, that's <laughs> true. Yeah, that's true. When you play like uh, Baldur's Gate, for example, uh, like the old one you're constantly saving like the, in fact, there's a hotkey you push Q to quick save. And I did that every, you know, every, every time I went into a new house, I would quick save or whatever. And then if I died, I would just go back right there. And I guess players can do that. You're right. Players could just do that if they want to in the game. Um, they can just turn back a few pages, just like any choose your own adventure book. Right. Right. But it is interesting to think through that as a system, right? Because the last thing, if you, if you have a 25 hour campaign, and a player is on hour 23 and then something happens and maybe it's a roll of the dice. And that's another thing is like, how much does randomness play into the fact that you lost? Was it your choices or was it just a bad die roll or something like that? And now you're back at zero. You had to start over just to get to that last couple of hours of content. And so, yeah, I can see how it would be tough because as a game designer, you don't want to just punish players like that necessarily. You want to give them options to go, okay, you made a bad choice. You had a bad die roll, whatever. We're just going to run it back a couple of pages and start over, you know, where you, where you left off. And I don't know. I th- it's just interesting to kind of think through. Do you have any advice on like how to do that? Like if, if the game is only, you know, a four hour campaign, obviously it's a little bit different than a 30 hour campaign. And so is that what to be thinking about? Or is there anything else as far as like what you're talking about was a safe system or, or something like that? You know, I think erring on the side of, um, uh, what's the word? Uh, like erring on the side of the players is probably a better idea. I think to be honest, I think we were too brutal in, in sleeping gods with punishments and stuff like that. With how, with how brutal the game can be sometimes. Um, because obviously, if you, yeah, if you put that much time and effort into something, you want to see, you know, you don't want to start from the beginning after 20 hours. Like, nobody's going to do that. Um, players want to see the end, and, and you see it in video games. Like, no video game is that brutal anymore. They've learned that um, it's more rewarding to just give players a little leeway and let them start over just a few minutes before and, and finish out what, whatever they were doing. Let them try again. Um, 
So it's probably better to let players, you know, give players multiple chances uh, than be too yeah. brutal. Yeah, I agree. You could also maybe come up with some thematic reason for the way the, the game works. Like, for instance, in my case, it, it was actually a lot easier because it's a Pokemon-style game. You've got your team of robots that fight, and if you're in a combat and you came in, and maybe you just weren't ready, maybe you had the wrong team structure or whatever, and you get just wrecked. Well, you didn't die. Your robots got blown up, and so you just have to go repair them and come back and try with, with a different team. You know, Maybe you have some other items or something like that. And so the game keeps going even right. though you quote-unquote lost. You know, you get an opportunity to come back and, and try again. And so that's a thematic way to handle it. And I'm sure, you know, as a, as a smart designer out there thinking through how am I going to handle this, see if you can come up with a thematic way to, way to do it. I mean, video games have been doing this for a long time, whether it's you've got a magical fairy that lives in your pocket and you die and it like pops out and ra- raises you <laughs> back to life or whatever. Right. Maybe you're already dead. You know, you can't die again. Uh, you know, whatever it is, I think it, it's possible to come up with uh, a way to handle that. Uh, another thing I want to, to mention as far as like story and that's like, so Sleeping Gods has a pretty wide range of, of things that are going on and you have multiple ways to get to the end game. And so what are some some things that you've done to kind of push players towards the bigger picture? Not just like, here's an event and go to the next page and then fulfill it, but just the bigger, because you have to collect a certain number of items over the course of the entire campaign to ultimately win and get the, the, um, the closing credits or whatever you want to call it. And so how do you push players from a, a macro level and not just a micro to keep going. It is a challenge. Um, but actually I remember thinking of it like, uh, the same way that, uh, Reiner Knizia designs his games. He always has a three act structure in his games or often does, um, where you play <clears throat> like round one and then you reset things round two, reset things round three. I did the same thing in sleeping gods. And, and, and so like, there's like act one and at the end of act one, you reset things, but you have to read, a certain story that sort of brings you back to uh, like your ultimate goal again. Right. And then at the end of act two, there are more developments that keep you on that track where it's like, it's like the game's like reminding you, Oh, remember the old, you know, the overarching story. But um, I feel like we could have even done a little bit more of that. What we tried to do also is just like in in throughout the whole map, like in all the stories, we wanted to 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 constantly be um, on task with with the stories we were telling. You know, we wanted to mention the gods, we wanted to mention players' goals. Like the we, it's like it's like creating. <laughs> you're right. It's like creating a giant book that. Um, all works together except knowing that play that players will only read like a fourth of it, but that it still has to make sense. I mean, <laughs> it was totally challenging. Um, so there, we had this giant book of like, we had a document with all these different, you know, all this information about the world and about events and things so that we could, um, so that the story would be coherent no matter which way you went. Yeah, very cool. So one thing I was thinking about as far as like, okay, how do video games do this well, do this effectively, get players to play 100 hours and, and get through the end of the story? And I was like, cutscenes. Cutscenes are such a vital aspect of a lot of video games and like kind of moving the story along. But like, how do you do that in a board game? Do I use QR codes and I hire an animator and then they, they scan the QR code and they go to a website and they watch a video? <laughs> that doesn't make sense. And so my, my solution was to put uh, different... Uh, basically exclamation, exclamation 
exclamation point icons along the, your journey. And when you see one of those icons, it'll give you a page number and you kind of step back out of the game and you go to that page number and it's like a comic book and it gives you a cutscene in comic book form of different things going on in the world that introduce new things happening in the story. And it might be something that the, the, the actual character in the world would have no knowledge of, but you as the player get to see, oh shoot, like something else is happening. There's some, there's some danger. There's, there's maybe some bad guys doing you know crazy things going on somewhere in the world. I wonder what that means. And hopefully it pushes the player forward to, to figure it out. I want to see the uh, next cutscene. I want to see how the story that I'm actually experiencing with my character plays into these cutscenes that I'm seeing that, that, my character has no idea of, right? So it's kind of like a movie, right? Where the hero is walking along and then it cuts over to the villain and he's doing his dastardly plot or whatever. And you're going to see how it all comes together towards the middle and then towards the end. And so I think, you know, you can kind of come up with interesting ways, maybe in different media. And I know, you know, your games, a lot of times you have music playing in the background to kind of create this, this experience, this ambiance. And so I think using mixed media in different ways can, can also really play into the experience. And, and tell me about that. Tell me about using music and different things that you've seen work in the past. Why did you do that initially? And what have you, what, what's been the response from players? Yeah, the, um, the music for me is like a huge part of the immersion of playing video games. Um, and I've always been, I've always been sad. Like I love the, the board game medium, but I feel like the one thing that it's missing for me is like sound you know, <laughs> you have sound from the players, obviously, but but yeah, the music and, and sound effects that you get from video games, I kind of miss that in board games. So we do, yeah, my wife composes these this music. Um, we we kind of work on it together. Uh, but it adds, it definitely adds a, some more life to the experience. Um, and so... I feel like it's honestly too bad that I can't include that in every box. Like if I could, I would include like a CD in every box. What's funny is we like don't even have a CD player anymore. I mean, a lot of people <laughs> don't even have one, right? <laughs> so, but of course you can make this stuff available online. Um, but I know a lot of players don't, don't use it. Um, but I do think music can be so immersive. Yeah, absolutely. And this is an idea I borrowed from you as well. And like you said, a lot of people don't want their phones or don't want screens around, but um, a lot of, a lot of places in my world, you come to it and you have a QR code and you scan that and it plays this Pokemon style, you know, 16 bit uh, music to kind of get you oh. into, Oh, okay. This is like a, a, a forest. And so you kind of got this creepy ambiance music or you go into combat and all the, the battle maps have different uh, mu music you can listen to. And the cave is different from the plains is different from the ice level, whatever. And so just trying to draw players in if they want to, you don't have to or anything like that, but just to give them, the option and that's been working pretty well. People are really wow. responding well to it. And uh, some people will be able to, or some people have chosen to like scan it on their phone and then cast it to their TV. And so then it comes out of the big speakers in their, their game room or something like that. And so that's been a, a wow. cool solution. That that's, I found. Very, that's fascinating. Yeah. The cut scenes and the QR code music. I had never thought of that. Uh, <laughs> that's really interesting. I actually, you mentioned comic. So I am working on another game and I just finished doing a comic cutscene for it. So um, I have done that a little bit, although comic, I feel like comic creation is extremely tedious and I wish I liked it more, but <laughs> I think it's uh, not my favorite type of art to do. Yeah. Well, you, you do so much other art really, really well. I feel like people would forgive you if you outsourced just that part. I think you'd be okay. <laughs> <laughs> and let's talk about that. The art needs for these games is massive. And so let's let's switch gears a little bit. Let's talk about the publishing 
side of things. How long did Sleeping Gods take from idea until it was actually at the manufacturer? And tell me about how long the art took. You mentioned the writing took a long time. Just tell me about the timeline and how all these things kind of come together and and why a sane person might not want to do this. (laughs) I think it took about three years from like concept to files to the printer. And um, for me, that's an eternity. I have kind of a short attention span. A lot of the games I work on, I end up like trashing almost immediately um, because I just am constantly chasing like the new shiny toy. (laughs) Um, But so, yeah, I I remember in the middle of the production, um, you know, we kind of looked at each other and said, man, if I have to look at this game one more time, I'm (laughs) I'm so sick of this game. But, uh, you know, you do get there's like a richness when you spend that much time on something. The game just develops over time, you know, and and uh, one thing I did when I was working on Sleeping Gods is I bought a, a an iPad because I, I felt like I was stuck at my computer constantly doing art. And I, I was like, gosh, I need some way to do art somewhere else, you know, uh, so I'm not not constantly like handcuffed to my desk. So I did sort of learn how to do art on the iPad and I ended up doing quite a bit of the art for the game on the iPad. And that, that, that was like a big step up from, from what I had done years before, just because now I can like do art on vacation, for example, or when traveling or when I'm at my, you know, relative's house. So I end up taking it everywhere with me and it it lets me do a lot of art just in like the spare moments. Like, Oh, we have a spare minute. I'm just going to do a little bit of, bit of art. I think that really helped me like up my production. So that was one way to get things done. (laughs) Yeah, let's let's look at it from a different angle real quick. What would be your advice on like how much art do you need? Obviously, you want the map to be gorgeous, to draw people in. I mean, that's one of the main things they're going to be seeing constantly is the map, whether it's in cards or a board or a book, whatever. The heroes, the characters, obviously, you want those to look really, really good. But when it comes to other things, if you have a stack of 100 items, do you need an illustration for all 100? Or can you just have words? You know, like what are, what are some ways that a person or a publisher could maybe cut some costs cut some time down as far as how long the game's going to take to illustrate, but it's not going to mess with the game's experience. It's not going to make players go, oh man, I wish I had more art here. I mean, they're probably always going to say that, but what are some ways that you can kind of cut time, cut costs when it comes to illustrations? Yeah, I'm always thinking about that. And I usually make bad decisions. Like for example, in Sleeping Gods, I say bad decisions because it just took so long. So like in Sleeping Gods, I I said, okay, I want a really nice illustration for every item in the game. And that really took months and months of painting to do that. But you're right. You can do maybe for an open world game just to get enough content in there to feel like an open world game. It might be okay just to have uh, a written description or uh, maybe just a sketch. You know, I can remember playing like some of the old RPG computer RPGs and a lot of those items, you know, you'd click on it to like examine it. And it wouldn't be like a super, super detailed piece of art. It's just like a, you know, just like a a pencil sketch. And sometimes that's enough to get people's imagination uh, going. So, yes, there are smart ways to do this. Yeah, that's a really good point. Not feeling like every single solitary image has to be just top of the line, amazing quality. I mean, you obviously in today's market, you need to have great art to stand out if you want to do anything 
it's or on a Kickstarter or GameFound or whatever. It just it just is what it is. But yeah, I think that's a really good idea as far as like having like blueprints or sketches or something like that uh, instead of having to go you know the full on full color expensive illustration. But also time. Uh, you know, when you have a stack of 100 cards, that's a lot of time that it's going to take people to to illustrate. Not let alone how much it's going going to cost. Uh, right. Speaking of costs, what are some other ways that you found or maybe had to find from a manufacturing standpoint to cut costs, to cut weight? I mean, these are really big games. They're expansive. they got a lot going on. How else did you cut some of the costs down? Well, one thing we did, you'll notice in Sleeping Gods, there are not very many plastic miniatures. And um, I think we could have had more. There were, there were points in the design process where it was like, okay, should we go with cards or should we go with minis here? And I think um, the, the problem is minis attract attention, right? They can help people get excited, really excited about your game. But I think in this case, it was like, okay, we want to just put as much content as possible in this game. So we're going to, you know, for example, the Atlas, it's, it's, it's thin, you know, paper and like, the storybook, you know, it, it uh, you know, we could have put those stories on cards, but it would have, it would have been weightier. You know, we're using uh, the, that thin paper uh, really helps to save money. Um, just because we wanted to put as much stuff in the box as possible. Um, so yeah, I, I think, I think really the Atlas and the, and the storybook let you put so much content in a game like that. Um, cards work too, of course. And, and we tried to be really minimal about how much cardboard, like, like thick cardboard was in the game. Um, they're only like three punch boards, which is funny because now or never recently came out. That's my latest design. And it has like, it's not an open world game technically. And it has like, I don't know, like 12 punchboard sheets honestly it has too much cardboard in it <laughs> it's like it's, the game's like heavier than than sleeping gods <laughs> but it's not an open it's not like a huge open world game so gotcha yeah that's something i i've run into as well is just like you need so much chipboard if you're going to have tokens because a lot of times you want really robust systems and lots of different items and if you want to have some kind of crafting system or something like that you're going to need lots of different bits and so one thing that I was really conscious of is like, okay, how long does this game take to set up and tear down? And then how much is it going to cost as far as chipboard and extra paper and stuff like that? And so the solution I ended up with is actually inspired by RPG games. And that's a character sheet that on the front, you've got all your stats and different goals and things you're trying to accomplish and your character's picture and your name and stuff like that. And then on the back, it has your inventory and it's got boxes, kind of like a, a video game, like, like Pokemon. You know, if you open up the inventory, it's got all the different items and the images and stuff like that. And then it has a, a, a blank next to it. And so when you find a new spring or a new gear or a new power core or something like that, you just erase the old number and write in the new one. And so uh-huh. instead of having to have a bunch of tokens that are more expensive because you have more chipboard and there's more to get out of the box and put away, instead, you're just erasing and then writing a new number. And then there are a handful of uh, components that are very, very prevalent that you're constantly finding new ones and, and spending ones that you have. And so for those, there are tokens and then you just kind of keep track of it. And then at the end of your play session, you just update it on your sheet, but it's very limited. And I think there's only uh, three of those. It's money and batteries uh, and then shields are the only real tokens uh, in the game. And so that's another thing. It's like, okay, how can I limit these different things as far as set up, set up and tear down? I know Sleeping Gods takes a little bit to, to get on the table and to put away so tell me what you found in your experience 
from that side of things, both from just a publishing, you know, cost and all that, but also just a usability. What were some of the things you learned maybe during playtesting? Yeah, that, that's interesting. You mentioned that I am a, I am a real believer in, because when I was a teenager, I played a lot of RPGs. So I am a real believer in like the character sheet. So yes, that's a, that's a super good idea. We did have the campaign sheet in sleeping gods. It's almost like sometimes I wonder if we could have used it even more, you know, to like make the player's life a little bit easier. Um, in uh, that, that reminds me of uh, we we have been working on a game that's going to come out later this year, and um, it's it's not technically I guess it is kind of an open world game because it's like Sleeping Gods. Um, but what I ended up doing was instead of creating the uh, like having an Atlas book in the game because we really needed to save on cost in the game, it's it's kind of a lower cost game. Um, I made the campaign sheet the map, so <clears throat> players move around on this map and they like draw where they're at, like like they're drawing like a little dotted line on the map where they're going. Uh, so it's almost like the campaign sheet from sleeping gods but that's the whole map (laughs) um it's kind of kind of interesting but i think it it helped it like we wouldn't have been able to to include a campaign in the game unless we had that so that was a new thing we we tried yeah that sounds super cool i can't wait to see that um and just kind of the way that you handled it because honestly your your campaign sheet in sleeping gods was a prototype for me to go okay that's really cool how they handled that what else could we do you know, and so another thing that's on my sheet is like the fast travel system. That's something you've seen a lot of you know, open world video games where you don't want the player to have to just trudge 10 miles back to town. You, you just have a system where, OK, you've already been there. You can go to a signpost and you can go there automatically. And so I created this like hover bus system that anytime you're on a page that has one of those hover bus stops that you look on your character sheet and it's like, okay, I have access now to all of these places I've been before. And so I just completed a quest. You know, I picked up the the MacGuffin for Bob back 12 pages ago. And so instead of having to like to, to play the game correctly, quote unquote, like players could easily just turn to, all right, I walk 12, 12 pages and, and here I am, but to give them like an out and say, you're not cheating. If you do it this way, <laughs> right. You're not just like skipping over all the content. Um, uh, but yeah, putting that on a good. sheet. And, yeah. So anyway, I feel like there's so many cool things to be explored. Like, one, there's only a handful of games that have done this at all, let alone done this open world thing well. And so there's so many cool ideas that people are going to just be coming up with. And I can't wait to see you know some more ideas that you have based on your experience with Sleeping God to some of these other games that you've designed and played and just kind of see where this space goes. I feel like there's a lot of really cool stuff uh, to, to figure out. And let's keep talking about these systems. Tell me about the save system. It's so vital if you have a game that's going to be played over multiple sessions for the player to be able to figure out where they were two months ago, the last time their group got together and played. And so how do you like, tell me your experience as far as like creating a save system that was easy to understand, easy to put it all away, easy to keep track of. Okay, here's my cards. Here's my tokens. Here's what I have. How did you do that? Um, l- let me go. I just want to comment real quick on your fast travel yeah. system. That's something that is so vital in open world video games that nobody's really done in the tabletop space. So that's interesting. You included that. I think we that's, shall uh, see. Yeah, that's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. uh, I'll be excited to see this game when, when you publish it. Um, but I think for the save system, one thing I've heard from people uh, is that it's a bit too difficult <laughs> for sleeping gods. I think it maybe could have been a bit simpler, um, but it is really important because 
I mean, to be honest, it, it's only a few. It, it really isn't that much trouble. You, you only have to write down a couple little bits of information. Um, some players actually don't even use it because they just keep the game up on the table for the entire, whatever, 15-hour campaign. People without cats and children. Right. <laughs> they, right. And I have both, so I understand that you definitely have to uh, have a way to save the game um, and put it away. Um, but I think if I could go back, I probably would have made it a bit more uh, like you didn't have to keep track of quite so many things when you save the game. Uh, one nice thing about the, the game is uh, like because the map is on that campaign sheet, players are marking where they're going. And so they're already kind of saving the game as they go. Um, I almost wish that that was it. That's like all that we they had to do was just it, the game basically saved itself. Kind of like a lot of video games do nowadays where you don't even have to think about saving the game. It just saves it as you, as you go. You don't even think about it. Um, and I wish I could have gotten that system to work, but the way it worked is, you know, players when they had to close up the box, they did have to write on a line sort of where they were, uh, different uh, aspects, like different uh, elements. Uh, I can't quite remember, like different things that the crew members had. Um, But it does make the game, you know, uh, a little more flexible when you can do that. Yeah, one idea I've had, and I'm not sure if this is what's going to end up being my final idea, but was to have a, a thematic bookmark where the player can keep track of they were on this page and it kind of, it's not just a flat bookmark one, but one that actually like sticks on the page. that kind of has a, uh, a way to kind of clasp to the page in some way. And then, so the player's just like, Oh, here I am. I opened the book. There's that's where I was on this page. But then I love the system you have with being able to write on that map and to write down, okay, this is where we're going. But you can also write down things like don't go here again, or this was a bad idea, or this was excellent. This is a cool go here. Every time you play the game, you can, you can remember for later, you know, and so if you play another campaign, maybe you have a different friend group or you just want to see the other 50% of the game that you missed the first time around, you had that map as this kind of living resource to go back to, to remember things. And I think that's a really cool way to, uh, to handle it as well. And so from the beginning though, was your idea for people to be able to play the game or basically have to play the game multiple times to see all the content or did all this content just kind of keep coming out of your brain and coming out of your, your hand as, as far as you were writing and drawing, did it just kind of evolve on its own or did you really think, okay, I'm going to have way more content than someone could ever experience on even one or, or three playthroughs. I mean, to be honest, when I was making it, I was thinking like, there is no way anybody's going to even get through one campaign <laughs> in this game. Oh, I, I honestly was so surprised when it came out because I was hoping players would be play one campaign or even multiple campaigns. I thought the, the, the number of players that would play multiple campaigns would be like very rare, but I was hoping it would be more than I was expecting. And it was, it was more than I expected. I was actually very surprised that players were playing multiple campaigns because I feel like the game really sings. You really get rewarded for playing like a second campaign. You know, you've learned the systems and yes, you have that first map from the first game. Um, it's like uh, it's like when you replay a video game, I feel like there's there's more of a, a an organic sort of memory of like, oh, yeah, I went to this place and that was bad. I went to this place and that was bad. I think in in the board game, it's going to be harder to remember moments like that just because of like the nature of the number system. You're not going to remember every little number. Um but yeah, so you have that that sort of note sheet. I think it does 
it really does reward that second play. Um, so, uh, yeah, that was a, a kind of a, a motivator to get players to explore more of what we had created. Right. And like you were talking about earlier, there are lots of different scenarios where you choose path A or path B and you're not going to see the other one. And even if it does end up leading you to ultimately the same point, it's kind of cool to go back and go, yeah, but I wonder what was on path B. Like, I wonder what would, what would have happened, what we would have seen, what we would have run into had we gone that way. And so I think that's another natural way that you can get players to play again is as they experience the game, they're like, oh, man, I can only choose one or the other. And so I'm going to have to play it again and try the other other direction. Right. And we couldn't always make them go in completely different directions. Like I know people complain about Bioware games where it's like it doesn't in some it's a false choice. Yeah, in some <laughs> right. It doesn't matter like what you say at a certain point, you're always gonna end up with the same cutscene, the same ending or whatever. But in Sleeping Gods, so we couldn't do that all the time, but I definitely tried to include moments where there were really important decisions. Like if you choose B you're going to get this thing and you're going to go down this storyline. And if you choose a, you're going to get a totally different like reward. And there are moments where like there are two totems. There's like no way you could get these two totems together in one playthrough because one totem is choice a and one totem totem is choice B, you know? So yeah, uh, I, I want to do even more of that if we, you know, for our next open world game. Yeah, for sure. I think one really interesting way to handle it is to offer characters that are vastly different. I think Gloomhaven does a really great job with this because you can play the exact same scenario five times, but if you play it with five different characters, you're going to have a totally different experience because they all work differently. They're basically different puzzles to solve and you're going to get a very different uh, experience. And so I think that's one way to do it, especially if you're doing like a fantasy game. So you can have the rogue, you can have the archer, you can have the barbarian, and that's going to be three totally different ways that the game is going to play out. And so maybe makes it a little bit uh, easier um, but that's that's one idea. You you just mentioned your next open world game. So you're saying you might make another one of these or you're already working on one. You know, I didn't know. Because it's like, once you've done one, I feel like you go, you know, that's that's checked off the bucket list. I don't have to do that again. But you're saying you're, you're interested in doing another one. Well, yes, I have been working on a sequel, actually, to Sleeping Gods <laughs> for like a year, um, maybe a little over a year now. Uh, and it's funny because when we end when we finish Sleeping Gods, I was so burned out. I, I said, okay, never, never again. I am never <laughs> making this again. This was so hard. <laughs> so what was it about the game that eventually brought you back though? The, or about the genre, about the idea? Like you just couldn't, as a booger, you couldn't get off your finger or how, how did it work? <laughs> <laughs> I think, you know, it's come down to this. I think in the board game tabletop space, it's really the thing that I'm most interested in right now. Um, Euro games were really fascinating to me, you know, in my early 20s. And I still enjoy them, but like I've kind of I've really cooled on on that style of game. I've I've really cooled on a lot of other lighter type of games, but I feel like this is a space that is ex- extra challenging because you have to do so many different things. You have to write, you have to create the setting, you have to make it it's it's so much harder to make than like a, a, another type of game. And that challenge is really interesting to me. You know, it's like I really like pushing up against that that wall. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, I 100 percent understand that, because way back, I think this was April 2020 is when I really started thinking, OK, I, this is what I'm going to start working on 
getting ideas together. It had always been an idea, you know, bounced around, had lots of notebook pages with ideas written down and systems and mechanisms, things like that. But April 2020, and one of the main questions I was asking early on, I was talking to other people that I, I kind of have in my little circle of, of friends of game designers and illustrators and graphic designers. It's like, can it be done? It was like one of the main questions, right? So in my case, can you create a Pokemon board game? Is it possible? No one's done it. People have done games that kind of have the flavor, maybe the vibe, but it's never been done before. And so that's in a lot of ways been a driving factor just to kind of prove, yes, it can. This is how uh, I, I think it should be done. And so I totally understand, like just the challenge alone can help keep you motivated. Now, at the same time, you know, you're two years in, two and a half years in, you're like, okay, I've, huh, I don't know if this is a good idea. And then you start <laughs> seeing how much money goes into it and how much you're spending for all these different aspects. Man, it, it gets tough. And so along those lines, what would you say to someone thinking about designing one of these games that's, that's maybe right in the middle of it uh, as far as like how to persevere? What were some of the things that you figured out for your own process just to keep going and, and to keep you know trudging along? One of the big challenges with designing a story game and an open world game is that the fun element is it's really hard for you to have fun in your own game because surprise and exploration is a it's, it's like a big part of the game. Um, but when you know everything that's in the game, you're not really experience, you know, experiencing like what other players would be. And so um, the thing that would sort of energize me is, is playing with new people and just watching them and seeing how excited they would get. Like, oh, I really want to see. Oh, my gosh, this thing happened. Oh, I really want to see where this story goes. I really want to see where that story goes. Watching their excitement and their interest in the game was sort of the fuel that got me to 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 keep working on it because I, I think, yeah, it's different than when you're designing like a Euro game and you can constantly play it and challenge yourself to try to do better and better and better, but you really can't do that as much with like an open world game. I think. Yeah, that's a great point. Let's keep talking about playing it with other people, play testing. It's, it's a monumental task to play test these games because they are massive. There's a lot going on. The story is robust, has a lot of different options how in the world do you play test one of these games effectively? Like, where are some of the things you've learned from your own process? You know, I think you can't always play them, uh, play test them in like quite in in a in in an analytical way like you can with other games. Um, it to be honest, there was a lot of like gut play testing where like we would play test a little bit and say, okay, this feels right, <laughs> you know, uh, instead of like looking at a big chart with a bunch of numbers because it, it's, it's not quite the same. You know, I can't see, I can see what their scores are, but it's more like how did they feel when they played the game is more important than sometimes than like a lot of the nitty gritty numbers. Um, so it can be really difficult to, to play test a game like this, especially because a lot of play testing these days you can get people to play online, but watching them play is so important for a game like this. And I can't be there, you know, to watch people all the time. So, you know, we did a lot of play testing at conventions. Um, that was before, uh, the pandemic, of course. <laughs> uh, but, uh, I do think for open world games specifically, I think watching the players is, is, is a, is a key part. Oh yeah, I completely agree. And just being able to see the looks on people's faces at the at those moments of like realization, like maybe some big story moment or some twist or something like that. It's, it's a cool, it's a cool moment. And, and making sure that that moment actually hits the way you want it to. Um, 
I think that's it's so important. But also, I found I found that you can test systems. So, for instance, I can hand somebody a puzzle, and the puzzle that shows up on page twelve, I can just hand them only the puzzle, and then they they try to you know see if they can solve it. And that tells me is the puzzle too hard? Is it too easy? And then so you can almost take out bits and pieces of the game and test them individually, along with uh, the whole system. At, you know. At, in general, uh, yes. this is definitely the case with um, with combat. And so, is that something you you've also found? Like, let's talk about combat for a second. Well, first of all, is that something you've done as well as far as like taking small chunks of the game out, or maybe you just play? All right, we're going to play from this point in the game to this point in the game, and I'm just testing, you know, this like hour long type of session. If a player was in this scenario, is that something you've done? Yes, in fact, near the end of development, um, Ira Fay, uh, designer. He, he did a lot of testing on the combat system. So I sent him like just the combat stuff, like the enemies and all that stuff. And then I would give him like assignments, like a bunch of different battles to try. And so, and he tested that, that a lot. And I had other players do stuff like that too. So yes, you're right. You can cut out little pieces and that's super important, you know, for like combat, for example. Yeah, let's keep talking about combat. How did you land on the system in Sleeping Gods. It's such an interesting system with the way you, you put the cards next to each other and it creates the grid and you can bleed over your attacks and hit uh, different monsters and, and from, you know, basically using uh, different, almost like Tetris style shapes and you can cover it. <laughs> like, how did you end up landing? Like, is that something you had from the beginning? Because most of these games, it's dice, right? You, you've right. got a monster, it has 10 health. I've got a sword, it does 12 damage. I roll, you know, whatever. And so you're just rolling dice and seeing what happens. But your system is a lot more Euro style, I think, in nature in that it's a little bit more deterministic. And so tell me about it. Yeah, and I think some players would have preferred us to use like just a straightforward dice system. (laughs) (laughs) It is kind of a weird combat system. And it wasn't, you know, at first we didn't have that system. We had like a, all the enemies were like standees and and like your ship was like this big board and like all the rooms are, you know, you, you could move from room to room. Um, and like the enemies would move from room to room, but it just got very uh, tedious. You know, you're just constantly moving stuff all over the place. And it was very hard to like get to make battles work. It took forever to get through them. I think one of my complaints about D and D and like most, and a lot of RPGs is when it, I love, I love playing, uh, you know, RPGs, you know, tabletop RPGs with other people, uh, except when it comes to the combat, I wish I liked it more, but I always get bored. It always seems to move so slowly and, you know, it takes like an hour. Everybody's moving their piece so carefully. And, and so my thought was, okay, how could I have like a combat system that was kind of puzzly and had really interesting decisions, but was like really easy to set up? And so that's where I came up with that grid system um, for the enemies. I was also thinking of this old game. uh, It was called, um, let's see. I think it was called Vagrant Story. It was a Square Enix game. And in that game, it was like a, you could pause the game, but you could target certain parts of the enemy. Like you could hit them in the, you know, the body or the head or the arm or something. And so that, that sort of inspired that grid system because like you'll see on the grid, like the different squares that have icons, they have, they're like named parts of the enemy. <laughs> I don't know. I thought it would be kind of thematic. You're like aiming for different pieces of the, <laughs> of the enemy. And it, it was something, you know, people hadn't really done before. You're not, you know, you're not just rolling dice and comparing stats. Like you have to 
almost physically decide where to hit the enemy. So, um, yeah, that's kind of where that came from. Yeah, but I love how you were able to basically make it a tactical experience without it having to be a map that you're moving standees or moving miniatures around. You, you still made it feel tactical, and you still gave that that vibe without having to worry about, oh, well, this character has five movement, movement this one has seven, and there's line of sight. And, you know, all the little nuanced kind of rules that get get people kind of slowing the game down and yelling at each other <laughs> because of all these random <laughs> things. Like you, you got rid of that because of the system that you created. And nothing I really love about your use of cards is that it's a surprise. Um, you know, miniatures are great. Standees are great, but the player sees those in the box. They know what's coming. They know there is a giant uh, spider. They know there's a huge dragon. And at some point you're going to fight it. And that's cool when you get to it, but it's nowhere near the same moment as when you flip over a card and you go, oh, shoot, that is a giant dragon going to burn us all to death. That's a cool <laughs> moment of like surprise. And so kind of taking that same idea for, for my own game, I was like, okay, I do have the tactical grid movement and you have you know different Robomon have movement of five different ones, whatever. I, I did go that direction. But to create the surprise, the, the tokens are round for your Robomon and then square for your opponents. You can kind of tell the difference between yours and the AI. Oh, but nice. then the the chipboard that they're on is all dual layered. And so basically the Robomon have the number on the back. So you can't actually see the faces, uh, the numbers on the back. And then there's a small hole on the other side that you pop the token out. And so you'll run into a combat and you, you need to pick up number 23. And so you'll go to the chipboard and you'll pop out 23. And you're like, Oh shoot, that's a, a mountain lion, you know, mountain lion robot. And okay, I'm going to fight that. But you have no idea what you're going to fight until it's the moment and you pop that token out and you go, okay, here it is. And uh, it also created the uh, storage solution because that's another thing that is so much easier with cards. You can just put the number on the back and you okay, find card 57, there it is here. That's what I'm fighting. But with tokens, it's a lot harder because usually you just put them in a bag and then you just have to figure it out. But when you have, you know, tens and tens, you know, close to a hundred different tokens, that becomes super tedious. It's like, okay, let's create a storage solution that makes that easier. And so that's the direction I'm going. We'll see if it works. Uh, Hopefully players, you know, get into it. That's cool. Yeah, that's really interesting because you're right. Surprise was a huge part of it because surprise was a huge part of the like the design uh, direction I was going. Like, I want players to be surprised. Yeah, I don't want to be able to know what's in that enemy deck until they draw the card in the moment. And I couldn't figure out how to do that with like standees. So that is interesting that you figured out that the way to keep that surprise. Yeah, for sure. And another thing I, I want to get your thoughts on is time. If combat is the main point of the game, it's totally fine if combat takes a long time. Gloomhaven, combat takes forever, but that's the point of the game. Right. Every every scenario pretty much is a combat scenario. That's uh, you know, the there's game. a few exactly. So it's fine if it takes an hour, an hour and a half, three hours. That's totally cool because it's the game. Yeah. But when you're doing one of these like open world narrative adventures and combat comes along, it probably shouldn't take an hour because it's just going to take the players away from maybe the core of what they're trying to do of why they're there. And so tell me what you found or what you figured out or maybe had to change as far as like maybe shrinking combat down, making it run faster, making it run smoother. What did you run into? So one thing that I've seen players complain about, but I ultimately stand by is uh, very like weighty turns in combat. So tons of stuff happens uh, every time you do something. So like, for example, when you attack an enemy, they attack you back immediately. And, you know, I think other combat systems might draw that out more like, Oh, all, all the heroes attack. And then there's the enemy phase where all the enemies attack. And then, you know, it, and it's sort of like, I just thought, okay, can't we just like 
sort of like condense all of these moments so that combat is just shorter. And I know for some people, combat's still long <laughs> in Sleeping Gods because you have to think through a bunch of stuff. But um, that was one thing that I was trying to do. I did, there's, you'll note it like most combat, uh, most combat uh, moments in, uh, in encounters in Sleeping Gods are not more than like two rounds. You know, there are very few turns technically. Gotcha. Yeah, this is something I had a hard time with for a little while was figuring out length because you know if you play a pokemon style game combat is obviously a big part of that but it's not just one like you want to fight a whole bunch of different trainers and and go up against a bunch of different bosses and and get the badges and all kind of stuff so it's a lot of like mini encounters and trying to recreate that in a board game and so i had this idea like okay i want encounters to take seven minutes or less and i don't know why seven was the magic number but seven just made sense in my head it's like okay that seems short enough to you know not feel like it's dragging on but then long enough to really feel like you've made some decisions and some cool things have happened but one thing I found was, so originally the system had these battle mats where you would have to uh, look in the adventure book and it would tell you, okay, add the terrain here, the tree goes there, the rocks go here, the pond goes here, put your Robomon here, and ready, break. And then you get into the actual battle. But then I found that that would take three, four, five minutes by itself. It's like, oh, okay, that's extending the amount of time this whole thing takes by a tremendous percentage. It's like, okay, how do I fix that? And so I started putting the uh, the battle mats actually in the adventure book. And so when you run into one of these, these encounters, you open the adventure book, all the terrain is already printed on the, the map, on the grid, and so there's no setup. So one, it made setup zero, and then it also got rid of a whole bunch of chipboard terrain, so it made the game cheaper and lighter. And so that was just the solution uh, I came up with, and it's working pretty well. And another cool thing is you can create these boss battles that are brand new, right? So normally you have terrain. And again, this is where the player can see the terrain that's coming. Like they know, okay, this interesting thing is going to happen at some point, but now that's gone. You don't see that interesting terrain. You don't see those interesting mechanisms as far as like how the terrain works until you open that map page. And you're like, oh dang, this is different than what I thought. And so anyway, <laughs> just coming up with more ways to surprise the player. Uh, it's been a lot of fun. These design challenges. Are there any other obstacles, any other design challenges you ran into that you want to talk about? Um, I think, you know, I can't think of any off the top of my head, but I will say that designing an open world game, I remember when it was done, I, I thought, okay, nobody understands how much harder it is to design a game like this than like <laughs> yeah. a medium weight Euro game, for example, <laughs> until they, until they do it. It is so, so hard. Uh, there's so much, uh, so many challenges there right that, that you have to overcome that uh when you're designing an open world game with story elements and narrative elements but you want to have uh different challenges you have to try to make it not too repetitive um so it's like writing a book and designing a game at the same time i definitely have more respect for like open world video game designers i know those teams are like hundreds of people sometimes but still i know it's a massive massive challenge yeah, it's unbelievable. And you, really, and you really don't know until you get into it because you start realizing all just the million little details that you didn't think about. Like you knew you're going to have to write a lot of story. You knew you're going to have to have a lot of art and illustrations and things like that. But then there's like a million other things that pop up as far as like manufacturing and shipping and puzzle design, like all these different things. And so, yeah, it is a massive undertaking. But like you said, you're, you're going to do this again. So it must be something that's uh, worth doing. I'm obviously right in the middle of it you know, right now trying to figure out my, my path forward. But uh, let's get some closing thoughts. What would you tell somebody as they are listening to this, as they're maybe thinking about doing it? 
working on one right now. You already told them like how to persevere and keep going, but anything else you want to leave listeners with? I would say it can be healthy to look at um, the, like if you're designing an open world style game to look at it as like, like a sculpture, you know, you're going to be, you're going to be constantly uh, adjusting it and, 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 you know, working with it and, and, and moving it in new ways that you might not have expected to work. Um, but I will say one thing that can save time is to figure out really, really nail down the different systems in the game before you delve too heavily into like the world creation, the story creation. I think you have to do that world creation and story creation, but to get a really solid foundation first before you go too far into the world creation can save so much time. Um, there were moments where we changed the skill system in the game, uh, like after having written like half of the storybook. And that was, you know, like weeks of work to alter all those stories. So, um, yeah, nailing down systems before you get too far definitely can save time. Oh, yeah. That's something I definitely have run into as well. And, you know, figuring out the skill check system, figuring out at least an idea for how the combat is going to work, you know, but. Yeah, having that foundation before you delve too deeply into all the writing and especially all the art and all that other stuff. Great, great advice. Ryan, this has been excellent. Where can people find you? Do you want to mention any games that you're working on? You got anything coming out anytime soon? Uh, Yeah, you can find us uh, on uh, Twitter at Red Raven Game um, and uh, visit our website, redravengames.com. We have a... uh, game coming out uh, later this year that's um, it has a little bit of an open world element to it um, but um, it all it, it's it's a team versus team game as well that I'm excited about we haven't announced it yet though so I'm not, I won't say the title but it's it's cool and then the other thing we're working on now is uh, yes a sequel to Sleeping Gods and I should have information out there about that game pretty soon so is, is it called Waking Gods? Uh, no, I w- almost, <laughs> you're getting close, but no. <laughs> awesome. Well, Ryan, really appreciate your time. Really appreciate you joining me here on the show. Good luck with those games. Good luck with bringing another open world game to life, man. It is no small task as we've just talked about. And so I wish you all the best and uh, good luck with everything else you've got going on right now. Hey, thanks so much. This has been fun. Thanks for listening. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com and find all sorts of game design resources, bonus material, and chances to win free games at boardgamedesignlab.com. And until next time, keep designing, keep playtesting, and keep creating great games. Did I mention keep playtesting?